are you doing, Aidy? Oh, I'm doing better now. I'm looking at you and listening to you. How are you? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I, I had one of those days where lots of things seemed to happen all at once, and then it went yeah. dead quiet. So I've got this app on my phone that allows me to check what birds are singing. Oh, I like that. I, I've become obsessed with, and the thing is, though, I don't learn them now because of, because of how we are with with technology. Because the phone tells you. Learning the one that goes like that to nuthatch, I go, oh, that's the one I looked up two days ago. I'll look it up again now. But um, yeah, so so yeah, no, I, I've had had a good day. I've got uh, unexpectedly sent some flowers by a very kind friend, and uh, that's that, nice. That's that chuffed me no end. Um, so is that, is that a friend or is that like a friend? No, 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 no. It's a, it's, it was a friend. I tell you what, my superpower, if I were in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it would be it would be writing a shitty email. And um, You'd never underestimate the power of a shitty email, though. Well, this, this was an instance where um, she'd been having difficulties with the, looking after the elderly mum or whatever, whatever. And um, she'd not been treated with any respect or or the family hadn't really been listened to, et cetera, et cetera. So I gave them both barrels. And um, the officials with whom she was interacting have now said, just go away. We accept all liability. Never trouble us again. We're oh, my very- goodness. <laughs> well done. So, so, so she thought that I deserved some flowers, which was very nice. That's lovely. Uh, but and I'm sort of secretly, uh, except not secretly now, because obviously I'm saying on the podcast. Yeah, uh, I, I actually love when I think someone's being badly treated by a bureaucracy. One of my greatest pleasures is getting my teeth into something like that and going, "Ah, I think you're fine." It's the, yeah. I could never be a proper lawyer any more than I could be a proper teacher, but there is something really great about saying, um. Uh, you appear to have ignored the provisions of the such and such, yeah. and such and such thing, and so I certainly didn't expect a, a bunch of flowers for it, but it was very nice to get them. So. I think that's akin to the bee in my bonnet that I get about bullies. Yes, it's a similar yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it, it's um, yeah, that big oppressive force, and and I always root for the underdog. So I'm I'm really glad that you did that. It's fantastic. Well, I was I was listening to a chap actually talking on a po- on a podcast, a, another podcast, other podcasts exist, mm. um, whose name I think is is Kings North, and he was talking about uh, the machine, the way in which we're all sort of tools of the machine. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, he said that he was a distributist, which is which is brilliant because that is he's the only other distributist in the whole world that I know still alive very popular theory in the 1920s and 30s which was that all property should be divided up equally but then you should be allowed to do whatever you like with the bit you had yeah so so I'll um, go with that yeah but um but he was talking about how he can I mean he's avoided the machine by sort of going to live off grid in 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 southern Ireland um but I kind of feel there's another thing you can do about the machine, which is to attack a, a small corner of it every now and again. So that's why, you know, I, I can't over, overturn all the powers of faceless bureaucracy, but I can make someone sit up in a in a, in, a, in an office every now and again. Um, and and I, I several times in my life I've done this thing where. I've, I know this is supposed to be the part of assertiveness, 
um, that is supposed to be most effective. So I, I consciously did th do this, which is I go into a shop where they've sold shoddy goods and I just say, here's a copy of the Sailor Goods Act. Are we going to talk about this or are we going to talk about my friend getting their money back? Or um, <laughs> uh, going to, uh, once happened, went to a building, the office of the building society where they were just being so slow with paperwork and I was about to have a baby and I went in and I sat in their waiting room and I made myself really comfortable. And I said, in case you in case you need it, there's towels and extra underwear and things Brilliant. in the bag here. Um, hope you've got a first aider because I'm not going until I get the papers. And they Amazing. Because that's just the it. fear of it, you know, even more than the fear of their boss saying you can't give this woman a refund or whatever. It's like if she actually has a baby right here. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's going to ruin everything. All right, so what have you got for me today? Well, I wanted to talk about language. This came out to one, what I was doing today. One of the things I was doing today was um, the final, final proofs of the next novel um, and uh, going through literally every line. And um, as I say, my editor is, is, is wonderful. It's not just the fact there's a comma missing here and there, but it, sometimes it's, it's uh, things like... Um, I may have changed the name of, of a house, you know, I've right. one thing in one page and I yeah. 50 pages. So anyway. I do that as well, where you go through and you have to bring a character back and you think, oh, what, was it Derek or Darren? Yeah. yeah it's Darren exactly. now. Exactly. <laughs> but, but yeah. what, what I was noticing um, is that I do, um, I don't, I'm not very good at descriptive writing and I'm not terribly interested in descriptive writing except in when it drives the story forward. Um, but that I do uh, attach sometimes a symbolic weight to words, um, which means that I am committed to something. So, for example, there was a, a an image of um, a woman losing a baby and the baby was smaller than... Uh, a man's fist right? right and uh we've had to make it we've had to make it not much larger than a man's fist for various reasons like that and then the editor said are we going to stick with the man's fist idea um and i said well yes we have to because it's sort of symbolic of the fact that even though he is a strong man with a large fist and useful for doing lifting heavy things and possibly fighting people he actually can't do anything about this right it's, it's that and i think it's um i think that's what you've done there is a really good tool for personalizing that story because as soon as you said no bigger than a man's fist all right i'm not a man but i looked at my hand yeah 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 uh, and then you've got that thing of that is that's how i'm gonna weigh this tiny life yeah it's the yeah. size of my hand and you can imagine holding it um, and, and then I think you can imagine what that would feel like to lose it. And I think that's what's going to put readers in that moment. So, yeah. But but what I realised was I was thinking about images and uh, and all this kind of thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm the opposite, I hope, pretentious about my writing. I write because I want, I've got a story to tell and yeah. so on. But um, I was thinking how seldom anyone uses a simile these days. Uh, as happy as the day is long. Um, you know, you know, when I was a kid, very old, we learned a whole list of similes. 
which yeah. were things like as happy as the day as long as true as steel etc etc that's interesting that, as something as something and so i suppose what i was wondering about is um how do we notice when language is changing um is it that we haven't got room for similes anymore or were they always a bit stupid in the first case i mean one of them which was on the list that i had to learn was pert as a pearmonger Oh, and I literally have never had any occasion. I mean, I hope they were pert, but yeah. So I think a couple of things there, isn't there? So, so I also like a good simile, but I, I think as we discussed last time, I write in a comic way, even when things are very dark, and and similes are really great for that. Yes, and and I think they're really good for relatability as well. For your point regarding language changing, I don't know if we notice it when it's changing. I think we can only notice it when it's changed because there wasn't an organized moment when we went from middle english to now no no. it just did that by itself because of people talking and doing things and i think we're always doomed to to hate it because i can remember the adults in my life really disliking the language that i was using and then i hear things now that younger generations are doing and i'm like oh it's just ghastly but it's not really it's not it's just them owning their colloquial language which everybody should so maybe similes are out but then there'll be some other things that are in like the portmanteau has come yeah. in a huge yes. way now yes and that's really taken hold with me and it's it's taken hold particularly you know in some of my friendships my stepdaughter loves them too and has thrown up a couple of great ones with me recently so i i think that yeah maybe just some i think that the devices will change but maybe what we're trying to do with them doesn't. That's great, because what I suppose I was worrying about, and I'm worrying it about it in the sense of, I, I don't think, by the way, that we're busier than we've ever been, because I think, you know, if you had a family with half a dozen children and you had to uh, wash on a Monday boiling water in a copper, you were yeah. a lot busier You're busy. than I am today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but, yeah. but we sort of, we, we're busy, we fill our days and i suppose i was thinking i hope we're not uh so it was my kind of is the death of the simile a sign of our writing the way we write or communicate becoming more stark and less rich and then you then you raise the beautiful portmanteau yeah is an example of exactly the opposite which are so gorgeously expressive and you can so I think that there are other languages that do this a lot, a lot more easily than English. You know, I, I can think of off the top of my head, Norwegian and German love the combination word. Yes. And yeah. I think in English, the portmanteau is going to step into that space a little bit because you can take several concepts yeah. or objects and you can put them into one word, yeah. which is so gorgeously full of context and... Yeah, I guess content, feeling, humour, and, and it's right there. It's like its own little slogan. So I think that that's going to become more of a feature. I think that we'll continue to see more contractions, and I think that words are probably going to change. I think we will probably eventually say amay instead of amazing. Yeah. And and I think that'll be fine because there are, you know, plenty of words have fallen by the wayside. I mean, one of my favourite things to do is, I'm going to do it right now while we're on the line, is, is to have a look at Victorian words which have fallen into disuse. Oh, yeah, yeah, great. And this is one of the most entertaining things you can do with your time. Yeah. Like defenestrate. 
yeah, defenestrate. The defenestration of Prague was a thing, though, wasn't it? It was a thing. It was a thing. Um, and uh, I remember, um, I remember my history teacher saying something like, "What would it be? Come on, remember this thing. What would it be if I threw my bag out of the window?" Mm. And someone said, "Relief," which I was a little hurt at. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but it's interesting you saying about portmanteaus and um, different languages because um, I curiously am far more likely to shove several words together mm. to make a new form in Welsh than I do in English, and I think I feel um, I think I feel uh, perhaps I suppose it depends on on how playful the context is because. Yeah. Um, I was talking uh, to someone I didn't really know at all um, a couple of weeks ago, and um, I made up a Welsh word, which um, uh, I apologised for. I hope I don't seem too anti-alpacaist, yeah, and because I'm not at all, and and it was gurfalpakai. Which I think was just such a brilliant word. So, so you anti-alpaca is? Does that mean that you're prejudiced against people who are anti-alpaca, or that yeah, you're anti-alpaca yourself? Th that I was, yeah. That I, that I, well, that I felt I might be um, presenting myself as if I were an anti-alpacaist. Fantastic. But in fact, I'm not. And and he said, he said, this is absolutely it. This is my word word of the month now. Um, anti-alpaca this is this is this is this is so a couple of examples here right so, oh. so we talk here about the death of the simile and we talk about words changing but i'm going to give you now so some old slang terms yeah. that have fallen out and, and i'm looking at this I, i'm struck by how modern they actually sound yeah so the first one is afternoonified a society word meaning smart the really? goods are not afternoonified enough for me the goods are not smart enough. Oh. So there's that one. Another one, batty fang. Low London phrase meaning to thrash thoroughly, possibly from the French abattoffant. So, oh. you know, so batty fang, if you, said, if you said that's a new word that was made up last week by some kids, I'd say, yeah, sure. Yeah, batty fang sounds absolutely, it's, it, sounds, it sounds rude, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Bricky, brave or fearless. Oh, well, that sounds like bricking it. Yeah. Chuckaboo, a nickname given to a close friend. You can be my chuckaboo. Ah. Well, again, daddles, a delightful what, what, way to refer to your rather boring hands. What is? What are they? Daddles. 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 Yeah. So there we go, right? Yeah. There we go. Yeah, yeah I suppose. I suppose that's really interesting. And I, I, I'm not against. In fact, it's one of the things that I. Um, when I'm starting to write something, I'm always looking for fresh ways, fresh expressions that I've heard or ways someone described. I mean, yeah. I told you, I think I told you the other day, uh, a friend of mine described an only child as a single suckler. Ooh. And um, she said, he's a very good little chap considering he's a single suckler. And it was I thought it was a hilarious expression, and I'm sure I will write that down somewhere. But so I, I, I like new coinages, but I suppose my one concern with new coinages is if the speed of them is so great that the moment you and I have started using the expression daddles for our hands, yeah, 
the, the, the fashionable kids are no longer calling them devils. You might be right, my old chuckaboo. So, but here's the thing, right? Do you think, do you think that having been so steeped in a culture where the language was stamped out and not allowed? Yeah. Do you think that that's maybe made you more protective of language? Well, I tell you one thing I do absolutely love. And I love I love finding out where a word comes from and uh, yeah. the way in which it's been touched by other languages and other words. But I've got a particular um, I've got a particular interest in words which we don't use in English anymore, but were used. It uh, was was sort of taken into Welsh. Classic example would be um, nobody says fairings anymore when they mean sweets in English. No, they don't. Never heard it. Um, it's basically the sweet, the sweeties you bring back from the fair. Right. right? Makes sense. Yeah. So you might offer your girlfriend some fairings. It could even, fairings in that instance could even be a ribbon rather than some biscuits or whatever. Yeah. Okay. But, but in this part of the world, we still say fairings for sweets. That's nice. And I love that. It, to me, it's like a kind of linguistic amber. There's a fly. Yeah, it's a trapped. Amber. It's like a little time bubble. That's nice. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think, yeah, I suppose I am conscious of um, not wanting to see good words go. And that actually, of course, is the same for the whole language. Yeah. Uh, and there's been an interesting, there's been an interesting discussion in Wales at the moment. I'm not going to try and go down a particularly Welsh line, but the Eisteddfod, which is one week a year, is a hundred. 100% Welsh. Everything that goes yes. on the stage has to be Welsh. And um, they uh, had hoped that a chap who's a rapper would appear. Um, but he has said he will continue to use English in his songs. And they have said, we disinvite you. I see everyone's point. Yeah, I do too. I absolutely do. Um, but the point that was made, I think, I think the strongest of all points was um, in Wales every summer there are 461 uh, festivals which are English only. Yeah. And there's one that is Welsh only. No, and no, I think it's and important. Nobody, and nobody's saying about, oh, why hasn't such and such, you know, why hasn't, um, you know, uh, a, a festival in, in, in Chepstow picked up on a Welsh band because they right. don't. Right, 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 right. Um, and I think it's fine because you said whether you know that about it. Yes. Um, that rapper's career isn't being hurt because he hasn't gone to the Assethford. I imagine he'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's perfectly fine to decide that you're going to have an event that represents a culture in a specific way. And I think it's fine to stick to it. I also think it's fine for him to say, I'm going to use English words because that's my art. Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. in that instance, people, you just yeah. haven't meshed up and that's fine. Yeah. Yes, no, I, I agree. But in a sense, in a sense, it's no different in one sense from curating anything. If you went to download and you said that you were going to do a really calm acoustic set, you know, um, uh, people might not want you there. Um, you wouldn't, we wouldn't make the list exactly, and, that, and that's fine. Exactly. So, you know, you're an English language rapper, so you don't you don't perform at the assessment but I think that's okay yeah um I, I think from an English speaking native English speaking perspective the attitude to language change is a little different because 
English as a as a as a unit doesn't really exist. You know, we've um, what's the what's the joke? And mugged several other languages in an alley and gone through their change, gone through their pockets for loose grammar. Yeah. You know, because, yeah, 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 because, it, you know, we've got the Latin influence, there's a Saxon influence. You know, when I went to Norway, started speaking Norwegian, it was amazing to me the amount of words and phrases and idioms that completely overlapped. Yeah. And it made a lot of the language make of, of English actually make a lot more sense in terms of where it comes from and some of the American divergence as well. So I think from a purely English perspective, we're very used to borrowing words I, yeah. I think also because of the linguistic prevalence globally in our I mean it's changing with my generation and younger but our general lack of ability to speak other languages we're very very used to listening to people speaking English as a, a second third fourth fifth language yes. whatever and therefore kind of making it up a bit and making yeah. mistakes and I think we get good at spotting patterns and just going with stuff which mm. is good in, in its own way um so yeah it was interesting to me to hear your perspective as someone speaking um a persecuted language you could say yeah well it was not now but it was but it is interesting because i find myself in business context at at the moment occasionally having to say to people um no no you do need to do this in welsh as well yeah A, a because it's the law but b if you're a company and you're trying to reach your customers yeah and one in five of them in this country don't speak that language yeah Yeah. as their first language you're just dumb if you don't take this opportunity um yeah and i I had uh i had an interesting experience where i'd kind of uh been involved in a in a discussion group where uh the materials were available in both languages and there was a, a young contributor who was very very enthusiastic about it she said oh they do I, I get the feeling they do really care. And, yeah. and um, I find it interesting because uh, language is a very good way of, of making people think that you're on your their side. I wanted to ask about Norwegian and I wanted to ask about you when you're speaking Norwegian. Yeah. Do you feel that you're the same person? In the sense that do you present, obviously you speak in more than one language you choose to present yourself in a particular way sure uh and there is obviously the limitation of the fact that you can't maybe don't have as wide a vocabulary or whatever yeah you feel do you feel that you are do you feel that you're aiming to present yourself in the same way in Norwegian as you do when you're um it's really interesting point so I, I think fundamentally yes I think in the earlier days of having very limited vocabulary of course there's a difference because having limited vocabulary will make you rather boring yeah yeah so there's that I think that I do present myself slightly differently because I'm still conscious that there is a gap in the language and that I'm going to get things wrong so I probably am more affable yeah right in as, as a kind of appeasement gesture that's interesting I don't think that I would have the confidence to be fully sassy yeah because if I make a quip and someone makes one back and I can't follow it up well what are you going to do now yeah yes so I think I'd probably be a lot more not easy going because I am easy going but a bit more of the bumbling idiot uh, in order to get people to kind of go along with me a bit it's I I find it interesting because I am I am I think a a slightly different person in English and Welsh right and part of it is 
I don't feel I need to be competitive in Welsh in the way I do in English. That's interesting. I wonder why. Uh, I suppose if, you know, brr, brr, is that Dr. Freud? Yeah. Because uh, it's more niche, maybe? Well, partly because I'm more likely to be talking to people that I know, but also because um, I suppose I don't feel the need to sell myself in quite the same way. It's not like um, 25 jokes a minute from love. And where I've noticed it more than in any other way is it, when I do stand up in the two languages. All right. I'm much, uh, I'm much more aggressive. Come and I have you in um, in English. But then that's also because I think the stand up world is more in English is more come up and, and get you where. Whereas the, the Welsh is more like oh someone's come on stage and they're having a nice chat. And hopefully right. it'll be a funny chat and we'll all laugh. Um, Got it. Rather than, oh, there's five people on the bill and I hope I'm going to throw a rock at one or two of these people, you know. Could, could that be down to some of the language devices that are available? Because, of course, all languages will operate differently when it comes to humour. Partly, partly, I think it's to do with, um, partly to do with the tradition of giving a story a bit more space in Welsh. So getting back to the business about how you describe things and put, whether you put similes in or whatever. Mm. I would be able, if I was on a little bit of a riff about something, I could probably get three, even five examples of funny examples of it into my Welsh. Got joke. it. In English, after two, maybe three at most, I need to go on and produce something new. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's almost like we're all sitting around with the Welsh thing. We're all giving ourselves some time to, to let, let's see what kind We're almost mulling things over a bit more. The language of poetry, you're ents. Oh, we're ents. We are ents. We are ents. But it is a language of poetry, isn't it? And I, I think for Welsh, now, and I'm ignorant here, so, yeah. you know, correct me if needed. But the poetry is built into Welsh. Yes. I think yeah. that English, the strength of English as a language is its adaptability. Yes. And I think that English can adapt itself to poetry. Yeah. But the poetry isn't a feature of it. I mean, Whereas from what I understand of the Welsh, you kind of can't get away from poetry. Like the way things are described it is lyrical. It's almost like, you know, people talk about what would happen if an AI got out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in a sense, Wales and Welsh is just some poetry that found itself a piece of land and some humans. Yeah, but yeah, thing, and a social but identity. Thing, but the thing that drives it, but it's the it's the it's the poetry. The poetry is the presiding intelligence, and right. all the rest of us are we're just the meat sacks. You're just trapped which, inside Shakespeare's head, living out the reality, because yeah. your language mutates yes and it mutates with beauty in mind right so i understand that it mutates in order to make things nicer to say and hear yes yes is the purpose and that's gorgeous yes as a concept i love that uh, well i suppose the the um you know my father used to say if you if you put a language in your mouth for long enough like a pebble in a stream it wears smooth sure and so if you're looking for smoothness, that's that's always a, a good thing. Um, but it's interesting because I've been listening to another podcast 
which is talking about the history the, of, the history of written Welsh, and um, pretty well the first piece of written Welsh is basically some tips to do well in a poetry competition. Amazing. And, it, and it's quite unusual because uh, normally uh, the first sort of things to get written down are practical things like how yeah. much gold does the king have or where big bog over there don't go yes exactly but they're going no no they say you'll never get anywhere in this competition unless you've got a good few verses of, of the poems but you have four-part harmony as a, as a cultural piece we do we do yeah yeah so as we... a curriculum item <laughs> as a curriculum item absolutely yeah. definitely and and it's um but it is interesting so i i think that may be why when I'm being myself in Welsh, I feel I can be a bit, um, bit less wisecracky. Yeah, okay, I can go there. Which, which actually leads me on very kind of a leap. But, but something that I learned this week, which absolutely I thought was amazing. Apparently, the warders in Reading Jail got on very well with Oscar Wilde. Oh, everyone did, didn't they? Yeah, and he help them win competitions, newspaper competitions. They would go in for competitions that said things like, think of two verses of, of you know, two verses to describe, I don't know, King Edward's hat. Yeah. And he would help them enter these competitions and they won. The warders of Reading, Reading Jail won all these prizes. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. There was just something so... um. What I liked about that was there's something so um, mundane about the thought of some guys in a workplace sitting down saying, "Oh, we'll go in for that competition in the in the in the Daily Sketch." Oh yeah, I to- think it also shows how human relationships will prevail over social status or what's exactly. necessarily happening. Exactly. In the in the face of whatever, if people are compatible, even if they're on different sides of a thing, then, yeah. you know, this is literally a jail, they'll get on. Yes. And yes. they'll find a way to rub along together and, yes. and get value from each other. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was, I thought that was a, that that's a lovely, lovely yeah, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. And uh, then I got to think again about, about language and how things change. And I thought, oh, do we even still do poetry competitions? And then I immediately went to, well, we don't need to because we've got social media, which is just this open platform for people yes. to put themselves out there all the time. Yeah. And then I got to thinking, yeah, but a lot of what's out there is really bad. And then I thought, yeah, but probably so were a lot of the entries that got sent in, but they just weren't published. So no one ever knew. Yes, I must admit, I've only I've only a couple of times had to judge any form of writing competition. And um, it's very encouraging because uh, it's very encouraging because you see that there are people who are bold enough to put pen to paper, yeah. haven't, haven't really thought it through at all. And so you can't help thinking that compared with these people, um, I'm Hemingway. Um, sure. But um, but I was, I was going to actually, um, uh, 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 if you'll indulge me if I can find it, there was a really good example of uh, this, uh, how, how, how Welsh sounds. Someone wrote a poem about the decline or the decline and fall of Boris Johnson. On, on, and although we're not... Oh, uh, did you see the cover of Private Eye this week? Oh, no, I haven't. What is it? 
Oh my god, it's it's something like oh hang on, I've got the copy of it here. It's like um Boris Johnson resignation special, and then it's just ha 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 written ah! all over the page, right the way to the bottom with some exclamation points at the end. Oh, and I good. stood in Tesco's and laughed my head off at it. I loved it. Oh, and then I bought good. it. Yeah, no, that is good. Um, I'll 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 find this when I when I find it. But um um. No, please do read it because I'd love to hear it. And then I want to ask you if you know, and this is rich coming from an English person without spelling for the love of God, but how did it get so lettery? Ah, well, partly it got so lettery because um, it was the Bible was printed in England and it was printed, uh, it, it was printed with the letters that they had rather than the letters that would have been used before. So, oh, gosh. Uh, so, for example, uh, there used to be lots of Ks in Welsh, um, and there just weren't enough Ks to make the Bible up. So they changed all the Ks to Cs. Got so it. There was, so there was an element um, of, of, of kind of compromise. Uh, of, there. like, spare parts. Oh, yes. God. Yes. Then everyone just had to deal with it, presumably. Yeah. Yes, they did. Okay. Um, I wonder but... what the excuse is for English, because the spelling of English is absolutely wackadoo. Well, you see, my father used to say it's because it comes from too many different languages. That's true, because we just, yeah, I mean, we have a history of going out and robbing people of things, and I guess that's true for words also. Yeah, and so... so um... It is a portmanteau, isn't it? It, it is. It. it is. It is. <laughs> I, mean, but, I mean, I think, oh, one thing that I absolutely love that I found out you know, a few years ago, is that um, it was a chap, um, it was a um, a Welsh speaker in who was working in India who actually yeah. saved Sanskrit. He saved the manuscripts. Huh. And um, he was fascinated by, he was a sort of um, a student of the history of languages, and, and he reckoned that we all go back to the same, you know, like a sort of the Adam and Eve of languages. And he yeah. thought that Sanskrit would be a very important bit that wasn't lost um and uh uh it, it very um very kind of um appropriate in a way that uh, he should find um yeah this is this is um this is this was a, a the poem for boris and remember that the um within each line there has to be a pattern so his tool a valediction it says his tools drew fools with falsehood and honours that made honour wormwood. His blight is on each knighthood. Hope he's gone and gone for good. Oh, I love it. That's great. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just quite, it's just a, a use of an old, but, but um, uh, yeah, the, the idea that, I love the idea that all languages are connected and, and so English because it comes from so many different sources. Yeah. It's got words that it has to have so many different patterns of rules. Yes. Because a word, well... Because... And it can be used in different ways. I mean, obviously there is a, a rule to the order that words have to come in, but English seems to me, compared with some other languages, to be very, very malleable. Yes. In that there are quite a lot of ways in which you can go around it. And actually, if you hash up half the order, the message will still get through and that's going to be fine. Yeah, which isn't like um, German, where German, the word order is incredibly important in German. And French. Yeah, 
So for French, you know, there is actually a manual. This is how you speak French and this is how it works, yeah. which really for English, we're still technically a non-standardized language. So, yeah. you know, when people get up in arms about spelling and grammar, technically, guys, we can do what we want. You're right. The, the yes. rules aren't written down for this. OK, so, yeah. And, and I think it's interesting what you say about all languages being connected. And, and that's, of course, it's true because all of human experience is connected. Yes. So the yes. words are going to be different, but there is. There are some fundamental human concepts that language is going to have to obey in yeah. order to be useful to us. Like your example of the Rhinelanders who didn't have, was it the, um, what the, tense was it they didn't have? They didn't, they didn't have um, the... Um, the it's gone the, out of my head. The possibility, yeah. They, they, they didn't have uh, the future... Con... Uh, conditional. The, conditional, the future conditional. They oh, got there. So, so, so that language I'm guessing is gone, right? Because to be a human being, you need a future conditional. You need yeah. a conditional tense because that's part of it. So we've all got a sense of me, you, them, others. Yeah. One, two, many, lots. Yes. Past, present, future, and what if. Yes. So those are going to be the building blocks of that. And then, of course, the need to describe things. So one of the interesting things actually about Norwegian is that they, they do have plurals in the same way that English does. But there's also... Um, a way of speaking in which the plural will go onto the object. Right. So you I... might say, instead of saying six big bags, mm. it would be six bigs bag. Oh, right. Would be the translation. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. In, in certain modes. So they do have plurals. It does work like that too. Um, Just in certain modes of speaking. So or, as much as those rules might change and how you go about that might change just what you have to convey is going to be fairly yes consistent right and, and yes. that's where we can relate to each other I mean Latin took um, grammar to a different level and of course yes. the Latinate languages have kept that on you know the Nordic languages not so much in English we actually have relatively little and that's all cool verbs are very accessible and that's fine it's not very easy you know it's hard to mess that up um, I believe in Finnish, they don't have any gender in their pronouns, which at the moment means that they that there's an there's an issue that they avoid. Yeah, they're super groovy in that way, but they do also have about five million potential word endings. So, right, yeah, it depends what you want to swap that for, yeah. I suppose. Well, if you well, want to be genderless, but essentially English is genderless, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. The? And I, I um. I, I I was talking to a friend who'd been on a, a residential Welsh course not long ago, and mm. um, they were she was a party to a discussion about why things have genders, and the the the, the answer really was because they do, yeah. And um, this the person who was learning who was sort of resisting this, you say, well, why is a why is a table masculine, right? Chair feminine. It's almost like people have just made things up. It's yeah, yeah. It's it, <laughs> just how it might be, and, and 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 so in Welsh, then your the number of some numbers change, uh, so that you might say there's a feminine and a masculine two, and a feminine and a masculine three, a feminine and a masculine four. Oh, okay, right. So, um, you'd say pedwa bors hadair kadair, which is chair and table. So they've got different, um, but um. I actually think one of the fascinating things about learning a language is exactly those things, like you were saying about Norwegian and, and, and where the plural goes, um, because it's a new way of thinking. Yes. And 
Um, I'd almost, I, I bet you someone's done a book probably in the 1980s as a coffee table type book, but a book about the um, the things that one language says which are not easily expressed in another language. It's sort of all the concepts. Yes. Um, I mean, I, I, if anyone says to me uh, about Welsh, I always say, how do you manage without a single word for the day before yesterday, guys, in English? I mean, you must just spend so Everyone much. Everyone else seems to have one and a plural for you. Yes. Well, yes. Yeah. But and... it's not slang. Of course, in colloquial language, we have use. Yes. But, you know, in, in general, well, kind of standardized also, speech. I quite like uh, that, oh, the, the old to the thing. Um, which is having a polite and a, a you know a, yeah a familiar familiar um, and um, apart from anything else, it's a really uh, it's an easy shortcut in a situation where you meet somebody, particularly if they're maybe not the same generation of you as you. Either they're at least twenty years younger or twenty years older, and um, you want to say to them look, let's talk as equals. Sure. But if you said that in a kind of way like that, hey, let's just treat each other as equals, that would be just like the most terrible kind of San Francisco 1968 type yeah. creepy comment. Whereas if you say, oh, don't you bother with your, don't bother with a vu. Yeah. You're and in leaving. Spanish, there's a verb for it. Right. There's a verb which basically means use the familiar version of you yeah 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 um which is which is kind of handy and that is and that is uh, that is always a good icebreaker because you use that and it smiles all around so i completely yeah. agree with your point i do also like the the leveling um effect of the english system though where, where you is you and don't think you're yeah. better than me yes <laughs> that's part of my attitude that really jives with that yes yeah although there would be something to be said for thou i feel we, i like a thou i feel we miss thou um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Especially in a situation where you might be saying to somebody something that's only for them. Yeah. Yeah. You know. No, it's cozy. It's cozy. It is. Uh, and cozy. I like it. Yes. I like to use it sometimes, depends on the context. But, and that, that show, that's another example of what you were talking about, isn't it? Is of how language changes. I mean, there wouldn't have been a day when we just decided that was out. No. Absolutely, they wouldn't. It would have just faded. And who knows why? Who knows what influence was there? Can we even track it back? I don't know. Well, I'll tell you one thing I notice, or I sort of, I, I half know this and I half suspect it. So I, I couldn't give you chapter and verse. But I think sometimes what we think is classical or good writing or the thing we should all aspire to is when some geniuses were at work. So we think of, of sort of Shakespearean English as being really brilliant English. Yeah. Because what we've got left from that time is the work of genius. Right. But almost you haven't got all the old dross that everyone else exactly, was up to. Exactly. We haven't yeah. got we haven't got the kind of the, the, the collected shopping lists of Anne Hathaway. Right. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, because they would have sounded greatly different, wouldn't they? And and so we so I think that kind of gives us a kind of literary nostalgia we think about how people spoke 
Uh, well, it does. And I think we can also say then that you're more complicated and more flowery isn't always better. And I'm going to raise a few eyebrows here. But yeah. I remember trying to read Umberto Eco and thinking, what on earth is this guy blathering on about? Because there really is only so much metaphor that I need in one sentence about a flower. Well, well, I think um, uh, this reminds me of a discussion that I had the other day about my editor, who, you know, I think is genius. Umberto Eco could have done with borrowing her. Really, she really, have, really, she really, really. Said, really, lovely book, lovely book, Umberto. We're actually going to print it at two hundred and fifty pages. Yeah, because what are you talking about for half of this? Yes. Because I know, I understand, I understand that you got another eighty words into the paragraph, but what are they doing other than yes. bystanding? Yeah, and actually, this is where I was saying today, and I was putting my hand on my heart because I like a big baggy Victorian novel. I yeah. like one of those novels that go on and on, like Middlemarch, where you think, oh, look, I've been reading this for the last five years and I'm halfway through now. And I've now found out that they're actually just organising a tea party. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, I, yeah. so I know I've got a tendency for that. Then you add in that I think P.G. Woodhouse is one of my big, the greatest stylists that really influenced. So when I have got a complicated story to tell, I can tell it in lots of words. And yes. the manuscript that is going to the printers on monday um is way better for the judicious application of the scalpel mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um the the story is much more exciting because of it because well it is and i think it's important then to have someone shape the story from the external perspective, because, of course, we get fond of characters and we yeah. get a bit proud of ourselves sometimes, yeah. maybe, for how we've put something across and how something yeah. might sound and all that's terribly funny. But that doesn't mean it helps the story at all. Yes. Yes. Yeah, there was there was there was uh, one piece that I was very sorry to um, sorry to see go, which um, forgive me if this sounds a bit grim. It's it's an older lady um she's in her 70s and she folds the detective's sleeve up to see and she says i just wondered how hairy you are and do you shave yourself and he's oh, like he's like oh my me. god oh my yeah. god he's like oh my god and she she said that's one of the advantages of having sex with older men they're nice and smooth but strong when they get beyond a certain age and he's like saying the detective is saying don't tell me <laughs> yeah don't tell me this and the editor i think slightly went also don't tell me this but i yeah. quite, i quite wanted to have a kind of um a kind of rather out there remark from a very old lady um again it's important though like we said last week i think about normalizing the idea that people over 50 have sex yeah 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 and and people over 50 are still having a decent time generally right and yeah. that actually it just doesn't all go away and that you can still feel desire and be desired and you know you don't need to just fold yourself up into a deck chair and again wait to gather dust or be thrown out yeah so or yeah indeed, I, I see or indeed why. in work as well because um somebody who i've been working with needed for her paperwork to find out my date of birth and i writing it down and thinking God, I am 20 years older than everybody else on this team. Yes. Um, uh, um, and I, so I kind of put, I decided I'd put it in the email and I go, yeah, absolutely a joke. Yeah. Born before man trod on the moon. Yeah. I'm really as old as all that. Yeah. 
Um, and I don't think she's turned hair, but no. uh, but I felt slightly I need to kind of make a quip about the fact that I am uh, a working crone. Um, simply because she wouldn't use that word. You're not no, no, I won't. I won't. But simply because of the fact that there are not. Um, I mean, fun enough, I've seen a couple of adverts lately for business services which have used women in their 60s. Good. Saying, saying, you know, I'm scaling my business, I need this software package or whatever. Yeah. Because it's far more realistic than that someone at 19, 19 be the CEO. Yeah, no, look, at obviously there are, you know, exceptions to the rule where people do amazing things before they're 20. But I've been 19, I was bloody useless, and I'm much more useful now and, and become more useful as I go. Yes. So yeah, I find that much more likely that someone in their sixties would have the vision and fortitude to actually see something through, as opposed to someone at nineteen who, frankly, you don't know which way up is. Do you? I didn't. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, this is something else I was going to mention. I'm, I'm sorry because you need to. Uh, you tell me what you've got to mention, by the way, because I was going to. Jump oh, it's so that. dark compared with what you've brought. I'm going to talk about the Titanic submersible. Oh, I was going to, I wondered if you were going to mention that. Yeah. Did you? Oh, yeah, because I'm yes. very morbid. Yeah, dark. So do you want me to should we do this now? Let's do yeah. it now. We can come back to whatever yeah. we want to do. So I wanted to speak about it for a few reasons. Mm. One of them is that I do have a fascination for disasters, and that's the kind yeah. of information that will stick in my brain longer than anything else. I mean, I can't really remember the plot of The Little Mermaid because I watched it five million times but a lot of years ago now yeah I can tell you everything about the Everest 1996 disaster yeah in time order right and probably you know down to what color everyone's summit suit was so that kind of thing just holds something for me and I don't know what it is I think because of the situation and, and I've actually I've got the names of everyone who was on board because it's important to notice that to note that I think because of the situation, I had an emotional response to it because Mm. of my own personal hang-ups. But I also had a response to how the situation seemed to be perceived in the media and the kind of behaviour that I saw it bring about. And also the kind of behaviour that it actually encouraged me to engage in, in in Mm. some capacity. So this is quite a big, chunky segment. So actually, I'm going to start with the people that are on board because it's so easy to lose sight of the fact that that's five people. They have now as of this afternoon, found the debris field. Right. So it's possible we can pretty much confirm now that we're not getting any of those men back. No. And in fact, one of those men was a boy of 19. Mm. So whatever anyone thinks about billionaires or rich people or whatever, you know, father and son, three other people have lost their lives. Yeah. And I know that there's also been a lot of talk about, oh, well, you know, the migrant boats are sinking and people aren't reporting that. We should be reporting that. We should also be... Reading yeah, yeah. those people's names out. There was, um, I think, a Welsh swimmer who has gone missing swimming the channel for charity. Uh, and he also deserves to be. But this, of course, I think because of the context and the horror mm. that goes with being trapped in a very small vehicle yeah. a long way under the ocean is, mm. is going to be particularly emotive. So on board the craft, which is called the Titan, there were Hamish Harding, who's the chairman of Action Aviation, and he's a really fascinating man. So he actually has the world record for the fastest circumnavigation of Earth via both poles by airplane. Right. 
And he also was on the flight that flew to the edge of space, courtesy of Jeff right. Bezos. So right. he's a real competent, adventure guy. I can see why this wouldn't have frightened him in any way. And then we had Shazada and Suleiman Dawood, who were investment bankers from Pakistan. Suleiman is the 19-year-old boy, sadly lost his life. And then Paul-Henri Najulay, who's a Titanic expert. He's actually led several expeditions to the wreck. Um, and his daughter has come out and said that, you know, if anything, she's glad that he's in the place that he loves so much because yeah. he had a real fascination for the Titanic. And then, and then lastly, Stockton Rush, who was the CEO of Ocean Gate, who is the company that built the craft. And there are also some questions about that because there are apparently reports of, I don't know how verified this is, but potentially there was some damage to the craft. I know that it was actually being controlled by a Logitech game console. Yeah. Which sounds shifty when you say it like that. I think when you think about in terms of its job was to give inputs to a computer, right? Yeah, Which yeah. A, a Logitech console does perfectly well because they do that all day long when you're gaming. You're just when you're gaming, you're just giving inputs to a computer. Yeah. I, I just it it, it, it threw up something for me because I thought well by the time you've built this and it would have been a hugely expensive craft to build why wouldn't you just do a custom steering system yeah um that that is you know that you know works and has been tested although presumably they did test it so anyway so there's all of that so those are the people that sadly lost their lives probably of course we haven't found them but if there's a debris field then they probably unfortunately aren't coming back to us so on an emotive level, this caught me because, I mean, I'm a person who will have a freak out if I get too wrapped up in my duvet. So the idea of being in this tiny craft with four other people, and it really is tiny. You can have a look at the dimensions online, but they were in each other's faces. I mean, yeah. they couldn't have been any closer. Imagine you right. just sat on a bench and you're in each other's space. Mm. I don't believe there was any CO2 scrubbing on on the craft either, but that's, that's something slightly separate. And then just going down into the depths where you're so out of your world. Yeah. And I know this sounds rich from someone that's going to go and climb a massive mountain, but up a massive mm. mountain, I've got air in my lungs. I've got my two legs on the ground. Yeah. And that's my kingdom. And I can do something about that, probably. I think I, mean, I just have that fear of the ocean and that crushing weight. So so what they think has happened is that the craft has essentially imploded because of the right. pressure. That's the best right. theory at the moment as to what's happened. And it's it's broken apart, which is a known risk of what can happen. Yeah. So that captured me from a horror perspective. And then I got to thinking about the morality of that kind of a quest. So tickets were 250,000 US dollars each. Yeah. Now, if you have the money, I, I, if people have money, I don't really care what they do with it. That's up yeah. to them. But it got me thinking about the concept of just because we can, does that mean that we should? Because of the implications then if something does go wrong. So in this instance, I don't believe that a human diver did go down to look. I think that was all done by robots and it was done mm. from the air. But in the event that someone would go down to have a look and try and rescue people, if that person then got into difficulty... Uh, and, and potentially also lost their life. How okay is that? Well, I suppose, I suppose that is though on a continuum from the people that get rescued from Snowden in flip flops every year. Yeah, and it's a bit more spectacular, uh, but a bit know, less breathy. People have to go um, out in terrible weather to rescue totally unprepared hill walkers. 
they do their own lives in danger for doing that um i think i detected a quite um quite a a kind of a rather to me hollow marxism in some of the comments that people said which is that awful they things, can afford, that's what i wanted to come on to if they could afford two hundred and fifty thousand pounds it doesn't matter if they die it seems that, that's the... that's that was the ugly side that came out of it so i've seen on social media quite a lot of memes and i've been sent quite a lot of memes today and i'll put my hand in the air now and say i've laughed at some of them mm. because some of them were funny and i think that there is that kind of gallows humor that comes with coping. yeah 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 as well but there were some that were just so deeply ugly in what was being said and it was that you know there was one of them that was like um there were some muppets on the titanic and it was like oh watching the submarine take out another five rich people yeah or something and this concept that because you've got some money you sort of just deserve to have bad things happen to you well and i thought that was kind of hideous because there's no empathy there for like now look for a while, we thought that they were still down there making banging noises, tapping out SOS, and there was talk yeah. about the oxygen and when that would run out. Okay, now we know it probably was an implosion and that would have been a great deal quicker. And for yeah. that, if that was the case, I'm grateful for those people. Yeah. But I wonder about the, the lack of empathy, how you could make a meme and share a meme about that when that's five people potentially suffocating in a box. Well, my... Uh, argument is on what continuum is a bit like the flip-flops on Snowden is on the same continuum looking at this on a continuum um, Stalin deliberately starved the Ukrainians because they had small farms Yeah, because they weren't landless and so when it got to the point where there's so many people dying of hunger in Ukraine that they had they couldn't bury the bodies and they were coming in on trains full of dead bodies yeah and would the makers of those memes cheer the arrival of that of a train full of corpses? Because those people had a small plot of land, actually, and many right. people in Russia didn't. And so, so compared with someone so, else, they are wealthy, right? Yeah, yeah, so compared with someone else. So you're putting yourself in, you know, and Pol Pot shooting people because they owned a toothbrush. You know, yeah. when we start, removing people's humanity for whatever reason i'm not saying that i think it's a valid spend of two hundred and fifty thousand. No, neither do i and i don't think anyone should have been there and we'll come to that point but it's it's like you're saying it's more about the apparent hatred and in some cases active glee yes yes that appear to be found in in the I mean, at that point it wasn't even definite demise at that point we were still dealing with suffering and panic yeah and awaiting yeah. rescue. Um, absolutely, and and I think um, I think it is worth reminding ourselves how much of the previous century, our previous century, was spent on horrendous projects which dehumanised people. And yeah. once you've dehumanised somebody, um, well, that's where evil starts. Exactly, exactly. That's the, that's the absolute boundary level. And so then, what? So then, what's next? Do we start actively taking out rich people into the street and shooting them? Well, where does it stop? Where, where does that continuum end? Yeah. Because, like you say, if you say, all right, let's say those five billionaires were the only ones. Yeah. Okay, that's the only five billionaires. They're all in the sub. Then yeah. there's a layer of millionaires, and then there's the next layer and the next yeah. layer. So the billionaires have all died. 
Yeah. So the next layer are then the richest people. Yeah. So do you extend the same hatred there? Do you wipe all those out? Do we get into class genocide? And and then and then where do you stop? Where do you stop? And, and then what do you also do about? Um, you know, it's it's the classic. It's a, they call it the free rider program uh, pr problem, don't they? About a creation of a just society. So you've got two peasants, um, Ivan and Stanislas, uh, both of them digging on a patch of land, both, you know, a certain size, five acres. Yeah. And um, Stanislas uh, works very hard and Ivan is down tools at three o'clock and goes to the pub. Right. Now, at the end of 10 years, if the price of beetroot is the same for both men, um, one will be considerably richer than the other. Yeah. Now, you can create a system that says at that point the rich one gets killed and we give all the beetroot surplus over to somebody else. But actually, um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that all injustice is merited. I'm not saying, you know, that's no. what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is that I think the, um, the projects of egalitarianism, when they're tend to produce some of the most terrifying and horrific um, uh, impacts on humans' lives. Yeah. And that's because they dehumanise people. And those people in that submarine were loved by people. Yeah, they were loved by people. And I imagine some of them had done crap things and I imagine they'd done good things as well, just, just like any human being going through life. Yeah. Now, look, I know that a lot of atrocities have been committed by the uber-wealthy. I know that there's a lot of corruption out there, etc. But I think that it's really important not to lose sight of the humanity in that moment because it's, it's such an ugly thing in the face of that kind of suffering, potential suffering, just to say, well, you deserve that because you're this. Yeah. And because, you know, particularly, like you say, because it's such a, okay, being a billionaire isn't subjective, that's just on paper, but is it then okay just to extend that attitude to everyone who has slightly more than you? How do you yeah. judge what's more than you? Do you judge mm -hmm. it by just richer on paper because of your bank account do you judge it by physical attractiveness do you judge it by how many friends a person has yeah. you know do we then just gradually stop seeing everyone as people and start seeing everyone as part of a problem because that's how we get incels and other radical well, people yeah i was just going to say this is where you get the, the sort of pathologization of envy yeah and um when you've got pathologized envy, you get very bad things happening. You do. Actually. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm ending up sounding like uh, the apologist for the rich. And I, you know, I do believe that thing about a camel and a, uh, an eye of a needle, um, simply because of the fact that if you don't invest in people and you do invest entirely in goods, whether that's money or paintings or whatever yeah ultimately people will bring you more benefit than goods will yeah i agree i agree yeah. however however um if you look at um a person who has a lot of money but who also gives a lot away you know um where do we go with that you know Right, and then you've got Suleiman, who was 19. What's he done to anybody? Nothing. Yeah. He just got born. His dad was rich. so He didn't do any of that. Yeah, So absolutely. whatever corporate shenanigans or corruption has gone on, that boy hasn't inputted into. He hasn't had time. Wasn't alive long enough. Also, also the assumption is 
that um, people who are wealthy are always wealthy through wickedness. Yeah. Right? Now, I'm just going to put slap a name on the table. Glenda Jackson made a lot of money being a great actress. Right. Yeah. Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton, yeah. What about people who, through their combination of talent, luck, and just keeping on? It's know, talent, not... luck, and grit, isn't it? Yeah, it's, exactly. You know, there, there'll be an aspect of yeah, all of that, and timing, maybe. Absolutely. You know, that comes into luck, perhaps. Yes. Um, but how can one say that they don't deserve? If you have a talent... If you have a talent, so you are a brilliant singer. Yeah. And you are better than, if you've got 50,000 people in a room, the chances are you'd be the best singer in that room. Yeah. That's something remarkable and something special and something that you may very well be able to cash in on. Sure. And I don't think that means that you're beyond the realm of human sympathy. No, correct. And I, I also thought about it a different way. So it's only this afternoon that we've realised there really isn't a hope of rescue. Yeah. Things are still optimistic this morning. And I thought to myself, imagine being in that predicament. Yeah. Managing to bang on the submarine, attracting attention, surviving. Yeah. Coming back up through that trauma and then seeing those memes. Yeah. Of what everyone had kind of wanted to have happened to you. Yeah. I think that would have been potentially more destructive than the time in the sub. Yes, yes. And, because I don't know how you come back from that. And and one of the things that I find difficult about this, I wrestle with this, right? As you know, when I do that those online quizzes, right, left, etc., I'm always bang slap in the middle. Yeah. M my tradition is from the left, very strongly. Um and uh, I would say that in many senses that is where my heart lies. But when I see people who are on my team saying, "Yeah, actually, these people deserve to die because they're multimillionaires," yeah. I actually think that isn't my team anymore. I don't. No, recognize... you're not my team. Uh, but it's a difficult line, isn't it? Because uh, as I said earlier, I hold my hands up. I got sent a couple of memes that made me chuckle. Yeah, they weren't the ones that were like. Oh, you deserve to die. You know, there was one, you know, yeah. the very famous image of the guy with his hands on his hips just looking really unimpressed. Yeah. And I think the caption was something like, uh, the moment you realise that the 250,000 euro fee wasn't a return trip. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh. yeah. and that gave me a wry laugh. And then, of course, I had to have a look in the mirror and have a little chat with myself because it was a hashtag too soon. But I, I understand why it's difficult to sometimes separate yourself or not difficult but easy to get swept up in the moment and I know that with how fast things spread on social media I think there can be a real zeitgeisty thing because there is yeah. that dehumanizing aspect whereas we're all here sharing the content and those people are away as my friend put it this morning I mean somewhat darkly but very intelligently and, and funnily Schrodinger's submarine yes absolutely Schrodinger's because they were lost and not lost right for yes. a bit yes so, I, yeah, I, I think it's it's very easy to get swept up and I think it's easy to find yourself in a situation behaving in a way that if you slowed down and thought about it, maybe you wouldn't do. I also think there's, I think there's a, um, 
there's a I'm I'm going to differentiate this here. I think having a joke about the most bleak of situations is actually one of the ways that we as a human being um, uh, deal with. It's processing. It's processing. Yeah, for sure. You know, I hold my hand up. I have heard, and I regret to say, laughed at some Madeleine McCann jokes. Yes. 9 11 memes. Oh my goodness. Some of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Done it. Done it. But I believe that that is partly just a way of us taking on board difficult information. And I think that that is in play for some of us here, because essentially, like I said at the start of this segment, thinking of being in that sub is akin to imagine yourself buried alive. Yeah. You can't get out. And if you get out, you can't breathe. Yeah. No one knows where you are and you can't steer anymore. Yeah. Now that's horror. Yes. And all you can do is either it implodes and you're crushed immediately or you wait to die. Yeah. So I think that that some of this behavior does come out of that. I agree with you completely, because what else does anyone do apart from just scream at the wall? Yeah. At the sheer terror of it all. But there's a difference between the assimilation of horror for humor and the belittling of victims. There is. There is. There is. There is. Yeah. 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 Definitely. And I'd say that was the difference. So the meme about it not being a, t- a return trip. Yeah. Is like part of that assimilation of horror because yes. imagine setting out and not being able to come home. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, sort of the jokes about removing another five billionaires. It's, we're not talking about pest control here, people. You know, we're talking about human beings. And... Also, also, what worries me a bit about the, the whole discussion about this um is we know it's well established that 10 percent of employees in any organization do 90 percent of the work yes right yeah and given that we live in a capitalist society it doesn't always happen that those people get rewarded but the people that get rewarded tend to be um in that group so let's assume that that would be the case for the economy as a whole, let's assume there's ten percent of the population who's going to make ninety percent of the wealth. Yeah, and that includes the income from taxation. Yes, um, well, and the, yeah, and employment that is then offered. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah. if we start saying that the the ten percent are people that we don't want to have around because they are baddies in some way they're sure they're they're, they're the um uh, the image of um uh, uh the the financier on the top of the monopoly box you know they're, yeah. they're, they're the frock coated capitalist they're a bad person yeah um, you think to yourself fine okay so so what are we going to do without them you know? right right and it is that what you say about pathologized envy again so if we have a look at the profile again of some of these people i mean as i say Suleiman less because he was a teenager but i'm sure he would have gone on to do great things we've got someone with a world record for the fastest circumnavigation of earth we've got another guy who's a titanic expert we've got another guy who even knows how to build one of these submarines much less steer one yeah these are accomplished people yeah and i'd like to bet that most of the people out there spreading horrible memes don't have as much talent in their entire body no 
to be able to do something like that. So really, I think everyone have a think about whether you need to sit down or not. Yeah, and I think also there's a there though there is a um, you know there was a Strangler song, wasn't there? No more heroes. Yeah, and one of the things that I think is interesting, and I was thinking about this, I was thinking about. Um, I was thinking about my father, it being Father's Day, um, and several people, I put a Facebook post up and several people said, oh, your father was a real hero. And uh, that got me thinking about what heroes were. Yeah. And the idea that you can be a heroic person, but not a saint, right? Yes. Is an idea that seems to have completely gone out of fashion now. You know, but heroism only takes one moment, right? Held up against a lifetime. Exactly, exactly. And um, you can be uh, somebody who has got most most. Well, all of us are mix of qualities, aren't we? And yes. um, sometimes the most incredibly uh, creative people are absolute swine. Yes. yes. Or they are fantastically interesting novelists but they voted the wrong way in the 1954 general election. Or something. Right, oh, oh, yeah, that's exactly, because also someone being talented doesn't preclude them from being an arsehole. No, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you could argue that in some cases, with some types of craft, you need to you need to focus so hard on getting your craft good that you haven't got room for everybody else. I've and, seen that a lot. And every time, but every time I say that, then I say Alec Guinness. Yeah, Alec Guinness, who uh, uh, is like the trump card for me to play in almost any argument. Yes, but Alec Guinness, um, who was, a, you know, a kind and generous man and incredibly talented as well. So you don't have to be. But but I suppose my point is that the purpose of a hero is for us to look at and say, wow, there's some qualities there that are admirable. Yeah. yeah? Not everything this person has always ever no, done. No, right. And, and 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 if we find out something about them that's less desirable, it doesn't remove that moment of heroism that still happened and both things can be true. And it seems weird to me. It seems weird to me that, you know, 200 years ago, everyone knew that Nelson was having an affair with a married woman. Yeah. But he was still the hero of Trafalgar. Well, he could get the job done, could he not? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, it was carrying on in a disgraceful way by the standards of the time. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be well looked on now. No, but we've almost got to the point now where um, if you win Big Brother, you know, and you once, when you were 16, you went on a bus without paying the fare. Yeah. You know, it's, everyone's expected to live up to Yeah, the... or, you, or you put out a bit of a tone-deaf tweet when you were 21 or something. It's like, oh, yeah. okay, right. Yeah, because no yeah. one ever said anything stupid when they were 21. No. Um, but uh, but that's like, so So next point then for me, and this is, it takes it off on a slightly different tack, actually. And this is now talking about what's worth it and what isn't. Yeah. So we'll probably come back to the Snowden in flip-flops thing. Titanic's down there. Yeah. You know it's there. It's been explored. We've seen the pictures of it. It probably doesn't have much left to give up. Is there really a justification for anyone going? What well, what would be the takeaway from having made it there and back again? I would say one of the things about this is it's a pilgrimage. It's a personal yeah, pilgrimage. Yeah, I understand that, it? yeah. And, um, you know, I 
may very well on Sunday nip up to St Winifred's Well for the annual pilgrimage, um, love a pilgrimage me. And I love a pilgrimage in, in all senses. You see, I like a literary pilgrimage, I even like a pop and rock pilgrimage. Yep. Um, and one of the things I would say about that is, to me, the thought of going to the depths of the ocean to see a crashed ship is like nothing just does nothing for me i no. can see the idea of diving on a coral reef or something that's yeah go it. have a look at the colors yeah yeah but, but um it's a we all make our own pilgrimages we do and maybe those people decided that it was worth that both in risk and in terms of of cash i was just going to say risk reward yeah. And I suppose that's where, on a on a personal level, I can't reconcile the two because I'm too scared to go down there, and I wouldn't go there for that. Yeah, I I don't know what it would take. Mm. I think it would have to be we've put your dog in another submarine, and you have to take a submarine down to go and get him. Yeah. At which point I'd be like, faster, let's go. Yes. But I can't quite reconcile with myself the value but then i suppose people do do extreme things for pilgrimage pilgrimage means different things to different people well i mean you you climb mountains yeah, yeah. i do yeah no and that that brings with it the same thing because it, and that's why i think i'm a bit of a hypocrite actually and i'm just allowing my own personal phobias to cloud my judgment of what people do because yeah. i put myself in situations where i might have to get rescued and people could get hurt doing that yeah but, but... and actually i would be fine with not being rescued yeah. If someone chose not to take the risk, I think that's something you just have to square yourself with. Yeah. But but I suppose we what we all do, um I heard a woman say the other day, uh that as women we make a risk assessment every time we go out through the door. Yes. Right? And that's kind of true in a way, yeah. But knowing where she lives, you know, boredom is Death of boredom is, is 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 the biggest risk. I know, I know, I know. I um, know. But um, I suppose we all of us make our own um, our own risk assessments from day to day. You yeah. Know, we, we 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 um, for example, um, we eat or drink things which are not ideal for us. Sure. Or we um take part in a sport that is potentially risky or yeah. drive too fast or, or we yeah. smoke or yeah. all whatever. and yeah. we i think as animals we're quite good at gauging the risk and saying well actually i'll kick this risk down the road a bit you know i'm going to smoke today I don't really worry about how ill I'll be in my seventies. Yeah, because I, I and I think we have um we have that thing of like nothing bad is happening right now. Ergo, everything is fine. Yeah, because you know, like for for example, every day that you smoke, you're like, well, I don't have cancer today. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. You know yeah, that kind exactly. of makes it fine. Um, and I think there are also the other thing that I think lots of us do. Um, and funny enough, I think successful people do this more. Is I think, I think some of the qualities that make you a successful business person, for example, means that you like to stretch yourself. Yeah. 
Well, and the majority of this party were consummate explorers. Yeah. I mean, they've been to the edge of space, they've been around the globe, they've been, one of them, down to the Titanic several times. Yeah. Several times. And I think that there can be something about that. I'm not going to use the word complacency, but I guess it is in a way and that, well, nothing happened then. Yeah. Therefore, but then I suppose on the basis of risk, who am I to say that someone shouldn't have an experience because it might have gone fine and they might have been back now and being like, we saw the Titanic and it was just the most magical thing in the world. I mean, we don't know if they did manage to see it. If they did, I just wonder if the view of it would have been enough. Well, I mean, it does seem like a pretty high price to pay, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. But um, we all we all seek for those moments when we feel really alive. I mean, you know, when when they when you look at the um, if you look at, for example, teenagers who are um, what are called doing risky behaviors. I hate that expression, but that's risky behavior. Doing. Yeah. Um, Almost always when you actually talk to them, they're saying, this makes me feel alive. Yeah. And I wonder whether for some of these, for some people, you know, I'm not necessarily saying the, the, the group in the, in, the, um, in the submarine, but whether people, there are, I know there are people who, unless they're taking a risk, it, it, those are the most brightly coloured moments in their days. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think there's something to it. Well, and I can identify with that as well, because I'll go out and go really fast on a horse. Mm. And that can kill you just as easy as anything else. And yeah, it, there is something about pushing yourself and stretching yourself. And, and I actually, it's it's funny where I kind of fall on this, because I do also thoroughly believe in doing things that frighten you every now and again mm. as a way to stretch or else your world can shrink. Yes. So very easily if you don't push outwards. Yeah. You have to push outwards or else you, you just get this familial zone, this comfort zone. I don't really like that phrase, but there we go. And um, and that's where nothing really happens. So yeah. in order for personal growth, in order for things to move, you, you have to push boundaries and you have to push outwards. I suppose I'm just saddened to see it go wrong in such a dramatic way. Yeah, I'm, I'm sad and I think it says something not particularly pleasant about our culture in lots of ways yeah um, it says a few unpleasant things it does um but it is also just a, a, a sad loss of life um and i don't really think that the um just saying well we don't cover the migrant boats in the same way well you know when but that, that just tells us that we should up our game on covering the minor the, yeah, exactly. the migrant deaths it doesn't mean that we should say well that's fine for the billionaires because that happened and no one talked about it yes it shows us we should talk about everybody exactly exactly and we should bring that up it's like when people go oh we can't raise minimum wage because then their wages will be worth less we yes. can't raise minimum wage because teachers only get 35k it's like well that's a sign that everyone needs more money then isn't it yes, not exactly. that we should keep some people really poor yeah. so that we don't upset the balance of someone else no bring everyone up together yes and it is but it is really interesting that it was framed as don't cover the millionaires in the sub rather than do cover the migrant boats right 
that's right, right, right. Whereas we should talk about the the migrant boats and uh, yeah, but and there's lots of things to be learned from this. But who can operate massive machinery? <laughs> you know, was it regulated? Yeah. Um. You know, how do we decide what's a good idea? What are the acceptable parameters? Because it, it does seem to me a bit like if you do have enough money, you get to exist outside the laws of what everyone else is doing. Yeah. And sometimes that backfires because yeah. you go down in a submarine with a joystick controller and, oh, look, it implodes. Yeah. So I think that there's a lesson there as well in terms of what wealth should take you outside of the rules of everyone else and yeah. actually where those rules should be enforced across the board. Because but, the safety standards for any other industry would be tougher than that. But I suppose, you know, Scott Fitzgerald had a book, didn't he, The Rich Are Different. And the, yeah. rich, the rich are different because they can afford to exercise mad ideas. Yeah. But, I mean, one of my favourite characters uh, in like local history here is Matt, 18th century squire called Mad Jack Mitten, who was um, determined that at one point he would be able to jump a five-bar gate uh, in a gig and right. he could always get the horse over but the gig was the problem the gig was the other side yeah yeah and because he was rich enough he smashed up all these vehicles in a kind of mr toad type way he smashed up all these gates and all these vehicles and he just paid for them to be repaired and carried on yeah and for most people the learning lesson would be so sharp that you'd have you know, if you try yeah, because then you smashed up the wheel on your gig, and you've got to spend a year's salary putting one back on or something. Exactly. So you've learned a blooming lesson, or you can't drive anywhere. Yes. So, and I wonder if there was, you know, something about that because uh, that kind of uber wealthy life, and I'm not speaking from experience here. No. You feel like you're kind of outside things, so maybe there was less of a sense of risk. I don't know. Um, so I, and I am a contrarian because earlier on I said that I think anyone should do what they want with their money and that's totally true I do but there's also a part of me that's really galled by the amount of money that was spent on the deaths of five people yeah because that all got spent and the rescue effort so okay so it's yeah. what so a quarter of a million each five people okay so one of them was a CEO so no so a million dollars sat there to go down there yeah then all those personnel efforts, all that money to go and look for it. And that will be ongoing because they found the debris pool, but they're going to need to find all of it. There's going to need to be some kind of rescue effort for yeah. bodies, whatever. So that's going to run to massive expense. I'm just like, oh, my God, that's so much human effort and so much resource that has gone into something that has no good outcome. But this is the reason why history is created in no one's. Because in the Netherlands, I bet they've got a giant scooping machine that they'll get out there and it'll scoop it all out. Because you remember when that um, uh, 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 the um, the ship, the container ship, was stuck in the Suez Canal? Oh my God! Going, that, that, like, now those memes, yeah, were they, they were first they class, were. yeah. But but you know, people were saying, "Well, what can be done here?" and of course, someone's immediately on the phone to someone in Rotterdam and someone in the Hague. And they get the stuff over there. Um, yeah, no, no, totally, totally. So, yeah, I, I guess I, I have two thoughts on it. One, a person's resources are their own, they can do what they want. Um, but I can also just think of a better use for five lives of, you know, of, of really brilliant people uh, and and all the all the money and effort that, that went into to I mean, I suppose... not existing. I suppose in a in a very uh, boring actuarial way, 
I would say, in terms of regulation, people should be allowed to do what they like. But yeah. they should be obliged to take out some form of insurance in terms of covering the cost of the rescue. Right, I agree with that. Yeah. So that the rescue is a zero cost. I mean, you are going to have the fact that people are going to go down and rescue them, but then those are brave people anyway, so they're quite brave. No, they are, and they're good people, and I'm really glad that people like that exist because, you you know, if something goes wrong, you want someone like that on your team, right? So yeah, it's lovely to do. know that they're out there. Um. Yeah, just the, I, I, I suppose it's just left me feeling a bit hollow. I, I, I think I just can't reconcile myself with what the point of it all was. When they could have just still been here, the Titanic would have still been down there. They'd have still been up here living their lives and the, those families wouldn't be bereft and, and we wouldn't have this ugly mark on, on social media. But maybe maybe we needed to learn something about mm. what we're like and maybe maybe one of the things we have learned is what a hero is and... You know, I mean, I'm in serious danger of bringing this back to Philip Schofield, which I'm definitely not going to do. But I think you are. But, I think you should. Let's do well, it. Well, my point, my point is, what do we do? We create, we create fictional characters out of real human beings. Yeah. Who then turn out to be real human beings. But that's and, a tactic, isn't it, of extremists as well, is to, to take a figure, a, a culture, a person, and turn that into a figurehead for everyone's problems. Yeah. So you could say like you feel a bit um, downtrodden. The the house prices aren't great. Inflation shot, uh, and there might not be a future because we might just have killed the earth. But it's okay because we can hate billionaires. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's the classic scapegoat. Put all the sins onto onto the goat, drive right. down the desert. But right. but also, I slightly think um, that there's a an issue about. Um, the whole idea about whether or not we need a um, a whole team of heroes in our heads, and um, because of my background, um, I was I was given a whole raft of cultural heroes by my father and a whole bunch of sort of religious heroes by my mother. So it's like, oh, um, are you a girl who feels you're not being listened to by right. her parents? Well, that'd be Saint Catherine of Siena, right? Oh, are you someone who thinks we should actually be a bit more kind to the poor and to animals and shut the fuck up about big houses and cars? That would be Francis of Assisi. And right. So, and so I suppose what I'm slightly saying is is maybe what we've done is that we we stripped ourselves of all these kind of heroes, whether it might be, you know, it, 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 it might be, you know, um, Livingston and Stanley in the jungle or whatever, yeah? yeah? We decided all of them were no good for various reasons. And then we realised we actually still needed to have some people that we cared about. And we ended up making little gods out of daytime TV hosts right. who turned out to be human beings like Oh, real people else. look with flaws and all that kind of stuff because that's what we don't tolerate well in our figures, do we? Yeah, exactly. So, so what we were doing is a bit like how we were saying about language. What we were doing is benefiting from a historical sift because, you know, Catherine of Siena is sitting in, in her room in Siena writing incredible theology, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, Matilda, over the road, is not. No. She might be writing a, a bit of a dodgy poem to the bloke in the tannery who she quite fancies. Yeah, yeah. 
none of this has survived because this, the filter of history. And so, yeah. so we got, we decided that we didn't need any of that um, and that we would just have celebrity instead of heroes. Yeah. Um, and then we find that the celebrities who... The, the human beings are sometimes disappointing. Exactly, exactly. Um, and they didn't go through... Um, I'm, I'm not I'm not advocating for this, although I sort of am. But uh, the process of becoming a saint means that somebody has to be the devil's advocate and has to stand up and say, what are the worst things we know about this person? Yeah. And, and investigate, you know, they, they, spend, they spend a long time investigating um, yeah. all the worst things down to, I mean, some of the stuff that comes out of convents, things like, I didn't like her tone of voice when she was speaking to me. Yeah, right. That'll, the devil's advocate will find that, and he'll present that and say, "Say, yeah, well, you know, we think that Sister Carmelita is a really good woman." Yeah, that's not the way Sister Bernadette sees it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because Sister Carmelita was a real bitch at breakfast one morning. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And all that goes in the mix. Mm. Um, but what we do with our celebrities is we say they're wonderful in every particular way. Yeah, until yeah. such time as they crash from grace and then they fall. Well, that's it. But then I think because we hold up that standard, the crash from grace can be over something that would be fairly minor in in the in the life of an ordinary person. Yes. And it doesn't take very much to crash, and it's it, apparently these days impossible to get back off the ground again. Well, that seems. I think that's that's well, that's another subject. Perhaps we should leave that until another week. Yeah. About, about how can you have human interaction in a culture without forgiveness? Correct. I think I think we've hit on something for the next one. I think we probably have. All right. Well, that was a trip. It was a trip. So we did language, abandoned slang, submarines, billionaire memes. And heroes. And the cult of celebrity and heroes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. All right. So we will be back next week to mill some more air. We'll mill some more air. Please do email in at millingtheair at gmail.com. I'm still mulling over some live show stuff. It might happen, but whether it does or doesn't, we'll, we'll be here talking every week. So please do join us. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That was fun. Still recording.